Our scripture passage today is from the gospel according to Luke. It's chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Before we read this, let's pause for a moment in prayer. Good and heavenly Father, Lord, you've given us all good things and all that we need for life. Lord, and all to live well and all to follow after your ways. To do this, Lord, you have given us this, these words of Holy Scripture. Lord, spoken to your prophets and apostles through the power of your Spirit, that we might know your will for our lives. Father, we ask today that the same Spirit that inspired these words would inspire us again. That, that Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and our minds, that we may hear, that we may read, and that we may understand. Lord, bless this holy reading of your holy word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is the gospel according to Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. That was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, one of the scariest things that can happen to any parent is to look up and to find out that you have lost track of one of your children. It's to look up and to know that they were here one minute. You look up and to find that one of them is gone. One of the most frightening things that can go through a parent's mind, and I'm not talking about like older children, like older teenagers, like in their 20s or something, because you never know where they are. I'm talking about like the little kids, the smaller ones, that if they get lost, there is a real danger that something could happen to them. They're kind of lost. They're, they're, they're cut adrift. They can't defend themselves. And there's a great danger to this one child that can get lost. Now, I remember the, the first time I lost one of my kids. Now, no, no, you might be thinking, like, well, how many times have you, has this happened to you? Look, don't judge me, okay? It's a lot easier than you think. 
Right, kids are really easy to lose. I mean, they're smaller, okay? They're really quick. And when they want to, they can be as quiet as ninjas. And they're just distracted by almost anything. So it's real easy, actually, to lose a kid if you're not paying attention. So I remember the first time it happened to us. It was my oldest son, Wiley. And he must have been maybe just five or six years old. And we were at Polly's Island. We were at the beach. We were taking this walk along the beach. And, of course, we have an even younger son with us who was, you know, not just barely walking. So all of our attention was to him. And Wiley asked if he could just go ahead and run onto the house. And this is at Polly's. The beach is divided by these jetties. And, well, the house was only a few jetties up. Go ahead, Wiley. We'll, we were planning to watch him as he ran back to the house. But with another kid with you and all these other distractions... We weren't really paying attention when, when Wiley took off. So we get back to the house, and my mom's in the house, and we say, well, did Wiley get in okay? She said, Wiley didn't come back. We said, well, you must have just not seen him. So, so we just scour the house looking for him real quick, and we find out in no time that he's not there. Wiley never made it back to the house. So a panic, we just run back out to the beach again. We look to one side, we look to the other. There's people all walking over the beach. There's no sign of our child. And that panic sets in that, that every parent feels that first time you lose a kid, we don't know where he is. And I do, the only thing I can do is I point myself in the direction where we last saw him and I start running down the beach. Like I told you, that was the first time I lost track of a child. And if you hang out with anyone with children, there comes a point where you lose track of one of the kids. And it's happened to me. It's happened to people I've been around. I was with a cousin once, and we were at a festival. A big crowd of people, and she looks down and finds out her youngest daughter is gone. It happened here one day at church, one of our festivals. Somebody looked up and found out they had lost track of one of their kids. And no matter how many times it happens and what situation you're in, there's always the same response from every adult that is in that room. And they all drop everything and start searching for the kid. I mean, when I say they drop everything, they drop everything. They drop all their concerns, all their worries. Whatever's on their mind is not on their mind anymore. All their energy, all their focus all their emotion, everything they feel is centered into one job and one job only, and that is to find this child. It's at that moment, nothing else matters. See, whenever something precious is lost to us, whenever something that we love, whenever something that is dear to us is lost to us, we become consumed with finding that thing that is lost. And it can be anything, anything that is valuable to us. We do it with like sweaters and pins or books. I can't tell you how many times I have torn up my house looking for something that I have lost, yelling at all the kids, blaming it on my wife. Where have you hidden it? I've never caught her yet, but I still swear she hides my stuff. But you no longer think in that moment about what you have. You only think about what you have lost. And that's what matters to you so much at that moment. 
And, and it's not that you don't care about those other things. You do. You care about those other things you have. But when you lose something precious, you're not thinking about what you have. What you're thinking about is how to get back what you've lost. It's that natural reaction to losing anything valuable. i got to work as hard as I can with all the resources that I can to get that back. Now, we often think of things, objects, people that are precious to us, meaningful enough that if they were lost or if it were lost, then we would go to great extents to find it again. But how many of you think of yourselves like that? How many of you think of yourself in that way that you were precious enough that if you were lost, and I mean truly lost, not, not GPS lost on the road somewhere, but truly and spiritually lost. That you are precious enough that someone out there would drop everything and be completely consumed with that one task of finding you again. Now I know during our days and weeks, we beat ourselves up. You know, we have times with a lot of self-pity. You know, we think, oh, nobody would care about me if I got lost. Like, I could just disappear tomorrow and nobody would care. Nobody would mourn for me. Nobody would come looking for me. And if you ever, if you ever think that, I want to I rebuke that thought right now. I want to rebuke that thought and tell you that it is wrong and nothing could be further from the truth. Because if you were lost... And again, I'm talking about truly, truly lost. That God himself would seek after and not stop until he finds you again. That's what Jesus preaches to us in our parable today. And he reveals to us a lot about the heart and the character of this God that we love and serve. And reminds us that our God is the God who comes after us, the God who chases us, the God who seeks after us. This is the God who values you enough, who values you so much that he would leave the rest behind just to find you again. Now, the story that Jesus tells, it starts with, uh, with the Pharisees complaining because it sees there's some sinners and some tax collectors that are, that are, that are being drawn to Jesus and, and instead of pushing them away, Jesus invites them closer. He invites them to eat, to dine with him, to talk with him, to discuss things with him. And, and, and these Pharisees see it, and they ask, why is he hanging out with these people? They're, they're bad people. And, and the Pharisees had good reason not to like him, because first of all, they were sinners. They were those who weren't following the law of God. They were those who were disobeying the laws of God. These are part of the, not, not just you know, those who, who, who weren't always behaving, but the criminal element of society as well. And on top of it, there were the tax collectors. And these were known for being notorious thieves because back in that day, the tax collector could decide for himself how much money he got from your taxes. And if you think our IRS is bad, their IRS was a whole lot worse because they could determine your taxes and then they could determine their pay based on how much they collected from you. So, so these tax collectors were known as these notorious criminals. And here are these bad people that are gathering near Jesus. And so the Pharisees, they, they grumble and they point out, this is, this is supposed to be a holy man. 
What kind of holy man is this? If he lets all these, these bad people, these disobedience people, the, the, this criminal element of society, what kind of holy man is this if he lets them gather around him? So Jesus tells them a story. He tells them a parable to show that they don't really understand the heart of God. He tells a story of, of a man who has a hundred sheep, and, and, he, and he points the story to the Pharisees. He says, what man of you, as in, if you were in this situation, this is exactly what you would do. Having a having hundred sheep, and just one of them wanders off. Says, How many of you wouldn't just go after that one sheep? He says, you would. You'd go after that one sheep, and when you find that sheep, you would put them on your shoulders. And you would rejoice because you found what, you, what was lost. And you'd go and tell your friends, rejoice with me, because I've lost something. And here, look, I found it again. And so Jesus says that is the way with our God, that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who remain righteous. Does that mean that God loves the more, more the one, than he does the 99? Not at all. Not at all, but because that one is lost, because the one is in danger, who, who like a child has wandered away from his parents and all of a sudden is in immediate peril. Because that one has wandered away, that one demands and requires the attention that others do not. And it's because God loves that one. It's because he refuses to lose even one that he leaves the 99. See, the Pharisees didn't understand the heart of God. So the Pharisees had painted a very strict and very easy to understand black and white world, something that, that we all tend to do. And in their world, there was the righteous and there was the wicked. And God loved the righteous and God hated the wicked. And he would continue to hate the wicked until the wicked found their way to being righteous once again. And here is Jesus eating and dining and talking and, and treating like friends the enemies of God. The wicked, the unrighteous, the outcasts. And the point Jesus makes with this parable is that God doesn't see sinners as enemies of God. They're just sheep who are lost. The sinner is just as much a part of God's family as the righteous are. They're just a family member that has lost his way. The sinner is every much and every bit a child of God as those that come to church every Sunday. It's just the sinner has gotten lost. The love and value that God has for each and every one of us doesn't change just because we're lost just as the love of your child wouldn't change, just because you look up one moment and find out that you have inexplicably lost track of them again. The love of God is that he doesn't allow us to stay lost. The love of God is that he pursues us and hunts after us until he finds us again. Now, this point I'm making, though, we always talk about it in the context of sinners, but it's not just about sinners, that God loves the sinners enough that he'll go after them and find them and bring them back to the flock again. 
It's a point Jesus is making about everyone. About every one of us. About you. About me. God loves you. God values you enough that he would come after you. If you were ever lost. Now you might ask yourself, why am I so valuable? What makes me so valuable that God would come and seek after me if I was lost? That's always a sticky question. Because what makes you valuable? It's like when a girl asks you, why do you love me? I mean, I'm always like a deer in the headlights with that one. Because I can say, well, I love you because you're beautiful. Well, what happens? I'm not beautiful anymore. Uh-oh. What do I say to that? I'll give you a hint. The answer is, you'll always be beautiful to me, darling. But the problem with asking what makes a person valuable or makes something valuable is that it could easily change, and then they're no longer valuable. Or the fact that value is relative anyway. I mean, it is. What makes something valuable is that someone decides to value it. That's why it's valuable. You know, from your lost sweater all the way to all the gold in Fort Knox. Why is it valuable? Because someone values it. And not everyone values the same thing. You know, take a, take, take a comb that, that Elvis once combed his hair with in 1967 at a concert in Las Vegas. You get a big Elvis fan, and that's like a holy relic to them. Like, oh, man, the king combed his hair with this. And if they got a million dollars, they'd pay a million dollars for it. But someone who's never heard of Elvis, that's just a used comb. Like, I'm going to throw that in the trash. See, that's how value works. It's relative. What's valuable to one is not valuable to another. So what makes us valuable to God? It's not because of anything we've done. It's not because you're smart or cool or good looking or even that you are so righteous or you come to church every Sunday or you do everything that God has told you to do and that is why he values you. It's nothing like that at all. You don't have God looking down from heaven being like, you know, that Rob, I really like him. I mean, he's just got it together. He's smart. He's good looking. He's got a great haircut. I mean, I really like that Rob. I mean, that's not how he values us at all or why he values us at all. What I mean is he doesn't love us because we're valuable. We're valuable because he loves us. That's what makes us valuable. God is the one who makes us valuable because we are precious to him. And you can carry this question on as long as you want. Why are we precious to him? Why does he love us? Because that's his nature. That's who he is. Because you belong to him. You were made in his image. And he has deemed you worthy. That makes you worthy. And this is the true heart and soul of, of, of confidence and self-esteem that, that we just look for and we long for and we search for so much. But we search in the wrong place. You'll never find self-esteem in yourself. You'll never find self-confidence by looking in yourself because it's not there. It's not going to come from believing in yourself. It's not going to come from accomplishing a lot of things and people telling you how great you are. It's not going to come from you waking up in the mirror, looking at yourself and telling yourself how great and awesome you are. Never get it that way. It's false confidence. It's false esteem. Because your value, your real value begins and ends with the fact that you're valuable to God. 
and for no other reason. And because you're valuable to God, that is absolute value. That's real value. It's not even relative value anymore. This is absolute objective value. You see, because all value is relative, right? What you value, I might not value. Our opinion makes something valuable. But God's opinion, God's opinion is called truth. God's opinion makes it real. What he values, nobody can change. What God values, no one can alter, not a single hair. Doesn't matter what people say about you. Doesn't matter what they think about you. It doesn't matter even how they treat you. I know it matters, but it doesn't matter in the fact that it can't change your absolute value. It can't change how important you are to the heart of God. And because we believe in this, because we believe in this absolute value, we believe that every life has equal value. And that's the very heart and soul of democracy even, the reason why we should all be treated equally under the law because we have all equal and absolute value in the eyes of God. People like to talk a lot today about threats to democracy. This is a threat to democracy, or this person is a threat to democracy, or this idea is a threat to democracy. You know what the real threat to democracy is? Is no longer believing in a God who loves us all equally. Because without that foundation, democracy and equality under the law cease to make sense anymore. But I digress. I want you to remember that you are valued and loved by God for no other reason that God loves and values you. Do you think of yourself like that? Do you see yourself someone who is valued and treasured by God, so valuable that he would leave the 99 and pursue you if you were lost. If you don't think of yourself like that, then you don't have an accurate self-perception. If you don't think of yourself as valued and loved by God, then you see yourself in the wrong way. And it needs to change. Do you think of yourself as someone God would rejoice over if he found you again? If you don't, you see yourself all wrong. And that needs to change. Now, every time we lost a kid or lost track of a kid, one thing that happened when we found them again it was a profound sense of joy. Just a profound sense of overwhelming joy. I remember running down that beach when Wiley didn't make it back to the house and we thought he was gone and running down that beach and you know in that panic parent state you're just going through all the worst scenarios in your mind and you're just praying as hard as you can, Lord, I'll do anything. Just bring him back to me again. I remember that profound sense of relief when I didn't run but maybe 50 yards and I see a little figure running back towards me. And it was just, oh, my. Oh, oh, Jesus, don't do that to me ever again. Just a profound joy, a 
finding something again that you had lost that was so dear to your heart. And until that happens, you never realize how deep your love can go for another human being or for anything else until something like that happens. And then in that moment, you realize that it goes into every fiber of your being. We talk about God's love a lot. Sometimes we talk about it so much it loses its impact and import. It becomes just another word. When we talk about his love, it's not just God's affection for you. It's not just his positive regard for you. When we talk about God's love for you, it's his emotional attachment to you that goes into every fiber of his being. That's what you mean to him. It's a love for you that goes into every fiber of his being. And if you don't understand that, then you have yet to understand the heart of the Father. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.